The following sermon was preached at Tower View Baptist Church. We are a gospel-centered, relationship-driven church that exists to know, grow in, share, and serve Jesus Christ. We do all this for the glory of God. For more about us, please check out our website at www.towerviewkc.com. Mark chapter 15. If you've been with us for any length of time, we are in a new chapter, guys. That means we are on the home stretch. Uh, You are in a mile 24 of a 26-mile marathon. You're at the most tired point. You want to sit down, but we're going to keep trucking anyway. So there you go. If you're watching us online, we especially want to welcome you and thank you. Uh, Many folks watch online because of uh, different or even visitors around the world watch, and we appreciate that as well. Today's sermon title is called The Great Exchange, Mark 15, 1 to 15. If you're visiting with us and you don't have a Bible, uh, we don't often mention this, but especially today because we're in a new chapter, we're on page 852, 852 of that blue pew Bible right in front of you. You are welcome uh, to turn with us there or uh, to take that Bible home if you do not have one. Please consider it a gift from us to you. Well, we live in a very politically correct society, don't we, these days? I don't think I have to tell you that, where language has been exchanged for political correctness. For instance, a kid's bedroom isn't cluttered or messy anymore. It's called, quote, passage restrictive. Or kids don't get in trouble anymore. They merely hit, quote, social speed bumps. You've heard that before. A student isn't lazy or just not a hard worker. He's, quote, energetically declined. Or you're not shy, you're conversationally selective. You don't talk a lot, you're just not abundantly verbal. Uh, Your homework isn't missing, it's just having a, quote, out-of-notebook experience. Uh, (laughs) By the way, these are all real conditions if you look up the psychology handbook. And you don't have smelly gym socks, you, quote, have an odor-retentive athletic footwear. (laughs) I didn't make these up, these are coming straight from the book. And you're not being sent to the principal's office anymore if you're a student. You're going, quote, on a mandatory field trip to the administrative building. So uh, try that the next time you go. Political correctness, uh, whatever that means, is, it, it's just ludicrous at times. But what it does is, is it takes a reality of a situation we all know to be something true and turns it into a little more flowery, a little more kind of easygoingness. So we don't want to offend anybody. We just want to put some labels on it. Well, friends, there is an exchange that happened some 2,000 years ago whose words, whose meaning, whose intention is still the same intention it had way back when. And it's called the death of Jesus Christ, the gospel of Jesus Christ. The message is the same. It has not changed. But I guarantee you people have tried to politically correct it all the way. Well, maybe God didn't really want Jesus to die. Maybe that was really just divine child abuse. Or maybe Jesus was just a good example. Are we sure even Jesus died, some would argue? Friends, Jesus not only died, but God has done such great work for us in Jesus Christ that the episode we're going to look at is a reminder to us how much He really, really loves us. The great exchange this morning. God exchanged our reality not for fake words about what happened, but He called us for who we are, but He gave us everything He is in His righteousness. And that's why I love 2 Corinthians 5.21, and if we're able, we'll put that up on the screen. For our sake, He made Him who knew no sin to be sin for us, 
so we might become the righteousness of God. The devil would gladly give a Bible to every man, woman, and child to promote obedience without the exchange that we surrender to the gospel. And salvation is the exchange of all that we are for all that Jesus is. And all by God's grace, we cling to that old rugged cross and exchange it one day for a crown, don't we? I knew I'd get a hymn in there somewhere, Meg. That's why I, had to, I didn't answer your playing this morning because I had one already ready. So what do we see here in this great exchange? We're going to look at three portraits this morning. And how does a story of a wicked man named Barabbas, literally the son of someone, point back to us? Well, the big idea today is simply this, and it's one you know well, but it's one that we're going to be hitting hard today. In the great exchange on the cross, the worst of me, your sin, my sin, was laid upon Jesus Christ. And the best of him, his righteousness, was laid upon me. In this great exchange, God gave us the greatest gift we could ever have, and that is salvation. And Adam's sin was charged to us, but our sins were charged to Christ, and his righteousness was charged to us. And the more we understand this, the more we will see ourselves capable of doing all that happened to Jesus at his final trial. As we come to this reality, one that you often hear preached during Good Friday and Easter services, friend, let us remind us that no matter what time of day it is, no matter what year it is, this is us outside of Jesus Christ. We are those chief priests and scribes and, and elders who conspired together to throw Jesus under the bus. We are Pilate who, even when he thinks he's a moral man, will cave in when the pressure is too great. We are Barabbas, the one who can only be set free by the one perfect one who gave his life in exchange for ours. We are looking at real historical events, but don't neglect the thought that we ourselves outside of Jesus are exactly like the players in this story that we're getting ready to go to. And that brings us to three portraits we'll look at today that we will see, three spiritual portraits I want you to see as we break down these verses. First, a spiritual love that Christ has in the midst of his enemies. And, and, and brother or Pastor Nelson read through that as, as the fulfillment of that came true in this passage. We'll see the spiritual blindness of the people in Pilate in verses 6 to 14. And finally, Pilate himself, the spiritual weakness that comes. But through all this, a gracious God. Through all this, an amazing God. Through all this, a forgiving God that even his own disciples have run away from him. And yet here he is, standing behind and before and in front of people he created and that he could smash out in a minute if he just gave the word. But he did it with patience for us. What a great God we have. Will you join me in standing as we read God's word this morning? And 15 verses. Tower View, I think we've done more verses in the last two weeks than we did in the first three months of our study together of this book, and starting in 2017. We're getting there. Hang on. But God will take us through this next episode, the trial of Jesus before the Romans this morning, the great exchange. Verse 1, hear the word of the Lord as we listen. And as soon as it was morning, or your translation may say early morning, the chief priest held a consultation with the elders and scribes and the whole council, and they bound Jesus and led him away to be delivered over to Pilate. And Pilate asked him, are you the king of the Jews? And Jesus answered him, you have said so. And the chief priest accused him of many things, and Pilate again asked him, have you no answer to make? See how many charges they bring against you. But Jesus said no further answer, so that Pilate was amazed. Verse 6, now at the feast, he used to release, he, that's Pilate, used to release for them, that's the crowd, the Jews, one prisoner for whom they asked. 
And among the rebels or insurrectionists in prison who had committed murder in the insurrection, there was a man named Barabbas. And the crowd came up and began to ask Pilate to do as he usually did for them. And he answered them saying, do you want me to release for you the king of the Jews? For he, that's Pilate, perceived that it was out of envy that the chief priest had delivered him up. Verse 11. But the chief priest stirred up the crowd to have him release for them Barabbas instead. And Pilate said to them, then what shall I do with this man that you call the king of the Jews? And they cried out again, crucify him. And Pilate said to them, why, what evil has he done? But they shouted all the more, crucify him, crucify him. Verse 15, so Pilate Wishing to satisfy the crowd, released for them Barabbas. And having scourged Jesus, he delivered him over to be crucified. Three spiritual portraits here today. One of Jesus' amazing love, one of absolute spiritual blindness, and one of absolute spiritual weakness. Friend, if you're not a Christian here today, thank you so much for joining us. We, we pray you see Christ lifted high and you see this, this terrible thing that's happening to our Lord and Savior. Uh, just make reality in your heart that God just opens that, turns on the light switch, so to speak. But if you're a Christian here today, this is what our Savior has done for us. May we never forget. Will you join me in prayer as we pray this morning? Father, thank you so much as we come before you. Lord, just the fact that you hear this prayer is evidence enough that you care for us. You don't dismiss us away. You're not so high and lifted up, Father, that you don't hear us. You certainly are high and lifted up, Lord. Holy, holy, holy. But, Father, through your Son, Jesus, and all that he was leading to the cross to do, we have access to the throne room, not through priest or pastor or shaman, but through Christ. And, Father, I thank you for that. We pray today you give us wisdom. Father, many in this room, I would argue most in this room, Lord, have seen this, have read this, have done this. These are familiar verses until we end out the scriptures of Mark. But Father, would you stir our hearts today to be reminded, to be reconciled, to come to a greater reality of what it means to know Jesus and make him known. We pray these things in Jesus' name and God's people said, amen. Guys, you may be seated. Thank you so much. Well, as we put up that first point, spiritual love, and we'll just stop right, uh, put it right there. I just want to remind you where we have been. Jesus is now gone from the palace of the high priest being condemned for blasphemy to now at the break of dawn, maybe around 5 or 6 o'clock, going to the, the office or the, the house or the palace of the uh, governor, Pilate. And the Jews have no claim to, to bring capital punishment, as you know. But Jesus proclaimed himself... Uh, to rival Caesar, and so they, he called himself the king of kings, and therefore it's a crime in the Jews' eyes, it's punishable by death, and politically in Rome's eyes, punishable by death. But here we see the selfless love of Jesus Christ, and I want you to notice that right as we get in here. Notice how quickly they move the case along. Uh, I, I, this is an unjust trial, but I wish our courts went this fast sometimes, don't you, uh, in that sense? Jesus was moved from about 2 to 3 a.m. through his Jewish trial for about two or three hours there, right over to Rome at that point. They, they didn't hold back anything. And so the entire body, in verse 1, consults with Jesus, and he led them away, it says, to be delivered over to Pilate. Now, I want you to notice something here. Your Bible, and I mentioned this as I read, as soon as it was morning, now, I want you to consider that word morning, because in Mark chapter 1, you don't have to go back there, but in Mark one thirty-five, Jesus got up early to pray in the morning. 
In, in, in other verses, we know from Proverbs, the wicked get up early to, to rise up to cause trouble in the morning. The morning is also the time where the new day, the mercies of the Lord are new every single day. And in about three days in the morning, Jesus raises from the dead. I'm telling you, if you're not a morning person, you might not be a biblical person. That's a joke, by the way. But there's something to be said about this, is that even though the Son of God rose early, He prayed, He did His ministry with His Father early in the morning, even through all this stuff, evil still lurks in the deepest, darkest hours of the night. And as He moves through this time, this spiritual love is going to come out. And there's only one accusation they can bring before Pilate, because he doesn't care about their religious stuff, so they tell him that, he's, that Jesus is proclaiming Himself to be a king. Well, only Caesar is king in Pilate's eyes, so Pilate asked him, are you the king of the Jews? Are you the one in whom all time and all space is ready to go forward with this kingdom? And this title will occur six times between verses 2 and 32 as we go through this passage, and it's an obviously a political overtone. And these words are the exact words that were asked by the high priest back in chapter uh, 14 and verse 61. And again, the high priest said, are you the Christ, the Son of the Blessed? Are you the King that we've been waiting for? And Jesus responds in some kind of a casual mode, Did you, or not casual, but a kind of a Coptic mode in verse 3. Did you see that? And Pilate asked him, are you the King of the Jews? Verse 2, excuse me. And he answered, you have said so. I mean, if Jesus is the Lord, why didn't he just blast it out there? I mean, if he's king, why didn't he just come out and just say, look, hey, here I am, woo, surprise, I'm the king of the Jews. Well, this is neither a direct affirmation or a denial. Jesus' intention, if you want to put it in modern words, would be something like this. Yes, I am the king, but I'm not the kind of king you're thinking of. As Jesus would say in John 18, 36 to Pilate, my kingdom is not of this world. He doesn't care about politics. Jesus doesn't care about winning the, the political race. He's already king of kings and lord of lords. Our king doesn't get voted out every four years by the moral or, or lack of moral majority. Jesus is always lord of lords. Luke 23.2 says that, that, that we found this man misleading our nation and forbidding us to give tribute to Caesar and saying that he himself is Christ the king. And so even in all this accusation, even in all these things that are unjust, he remains steadfast to the mission to go to the cross. What love that is. And Pilate, again, asks two questions there in verse 4. Did you notice that? Have you no answer to make? See how many charges they bring against you. Pilate has never seen anything like this. Here's a man coming before him who not only takes the verbal barrage, takes the beating, but is unwilling to defend himself. Now, I don't know about you. I've never been in a court of law before, but even when things come up that are untrue about you, we get online and we're like, no, that's not me. This is the real story that happened. Or this is me, this is what's good. I'm, I didn't do that. But yet our Savior is silent. Pilate would try to wash his hands of this man. In fact, at this stage, and Mark doesn't record it, but, but Luke does, Pilate then sends him away. Do you remember this part of the story? In Luke chapter 23, Pilate sends him over to Herod Antipas. Luke records this in his gospel. So Pilate asks these questions, and we take a break. Mark doesn't record it. He sends him over to the other Roman guy because Pilate doesn't know what to do with him. And Jesus would not say a single word to Herod Antipas, the other Roman ruler and murderer of John the Baptist, because he would not cast his pearls before swine or before pigs. 
But the oppression was coming, and Isaiah 53, 7 was being fulfilled. It says, he was oppressed and afflicted, yet he did not open his mouth. Here's the great king's silence in the face of his accusers. Friends, this world is never going to be your friend. This world, on account of your faith, is going to accuse you of many things that you may or may not have done in the name of Jesus Christ. For those things that are false, vengeance is mine, saith the Lord. Leave it to Him. Now, well, Darren, didn't Paul, uh, didn't Paul fight with his Roman citizenship to have rights as a Roman citizen? Sure. But at the end of the day, Paul knew that everything they said about him was just simply nothing because he knew that he was unworthy to be in his Lord's presence and how much more those who are unworthy to be there. But Jesus is speaking loudly from his silence. This is love. Guys, he could have come down with angels. He could have come down and wiped it all out, but he did this for you. He did this because he loves you. He did this, and this portrait is a scene of holding up for those who seek the meaning of what it means to, what it means to have sacrificial love. This is Christ. He took it. Don't ever forget that. So much injustice in this world, God can come and take over right away, but he has a plan, and there is timing that comes. And the previous night at Gethsemane, Jesus had already resigned himself to this fact and he'd given himself over to this portrait of love because he knew without it there would be no love for us. And this is what the Apostle Paul had in mind to the Corinthian church. Paul wrote to them, For the love of Christ controls us, having concluded this, that one died for all, therefore all died. And he died for all, so that they who live might no longer live for uh, themselves, but for him who died and rose again on their behalf. Christ loves you guys. But let me remind us that Christ doesn't love you because you are lovely. He loves you despite your unloveliness. And here's the reality. Satan wants you. And, and, and uh, about said Amy, I'm used to Amy being back there and all these things. Uh, Tori uh, will throw this up there. Satan wants you guys. He wants you so badly. Satan wants you. He wants everything about you. And God wants you. But only one wants you with love. The other wants you with sadistic hate. And Satan would have nothing more than for you yourself to turn away from the love of God, the sacrificial love of God, and follow what he has for you. But our security does not rest on our love for God. Our security rests on the, unfaith, or the faithful, unshakable love that Christ had for us. I love that. You know, we've been talking in our classroom in Ephesians. We've solved the whole Calvinism, Arminian debate in two weeks, by the way. I hope you know. If you weren't there, you missed out. We got it all solved. Come, uh, Patsy especially took all the notes. She's got it all figured out. We got this whole thing figured out. But I'll tell you what, one thing we came to as we've been reading through Ephesians 1 is this. And we know this if you know your Bible. Salvation does not start with you. It starts with who? It starts with God. And it says in Ephesians 1 that he called you and you heard the word and you believed and you're in there in the middle and you respond to his love. But it says it's God who seals you up. It's like a sandwich. God's the bread. This is a bad analogy. Don't take this too far. But God's the bread on the top and the bread in the middle. And somehow he lets you stay in the middle and he sandwiches you all between because in his love he holds you, he keeps you, he loves you. But Satan would have you believe the other way. Satan would have you think that it's about you, that you chose God, that you can get saved by yourself, that you can keep yourself for eternity. And you better believe that at this moment when Jesus was being accused, when the pain as on his human side, Jesus has two natures, one divine and one human, one divine, one human, that's a hint, hint for you theology quiz people, if you've taken that quiz. But even despite all that, he still stayed the course for you and for his glory. 
you better believe that Satan was doing everything in his power to get him off that cross. Does Satan know all things? No, he does not. But he knows if Christ is dying for something, it's, he better listen up. Friend, if you're not a Christian here today, Satan's greatest desire for you is that you would believe that you are able in yourself to save yourself, to be a Christian by yourself. But God reminds us here that it took the sacrificial love of Christ, silencing his lips, going through all that he went through, that we would have eternal life. Second point is this. We see a portrait not only of spiritual love, but we see a portrait of spiritual blindness. Look down at verse 6 as we continue on through the narrative. Verse 6. And you notice as we pick this up that we're in a different heading. I just want to remind you, just good Bible study 101, the headings in your Bible, those bold things, were not original to the text. So uh, just, just know that. You've got the cheat sheet. It kind of summarizes for you, but we pick it up in verse 6. And it says, now at the feast, remember the feast, it's a Passover weekend. Now at the feast, he, Pilate, used to release for them. Let me just stop there for a second. This always happened at Passover. This always happened. Rome allowed each country that they overtook to have a custom they could continue on. Because Rome knew that as long as those people were at least satisfied somewhat, they could keep the political unrest to a, to a, to a minimum. And it began before Pilate. It's like a presidential pardon. Uh, it's like when the president pardons the turkey on Thanksgiving Day. No one really cares, but you do it anyway. And, and it's a little more greater than that. There may be no reason, but he does it because that's what people expect of him. It's kind of his wild card in the deck to evade responsibility from Pilate's perspective. But Jesus is labeled a terrorist here, or, or excuse me, Barabbas is labeled a terrorist. And we go on in verse 7, and among the rebels in prison who had committed murder in the insurrection was a man named Barabbas. Uh, it's been 14, 15 years, and, and we need to be careful with these movies because they're not always accurate, but when The Passion of the Christ came out, many of y'all saw that movie. Barabbas was this guy. I always have an image in my mind. He had like one lazy guy and one crazy guy that was doing some weird thing. And he came out of prison. His teeth were jagged and crooked. We don't know what he looked like. All we know is these three things. He was in prison. He was locked up because he was found guilty. He was an insurrectionist. He was an extreme terrorist. Barabbas was a terrorist, basically homegrown terrorist. He was probably a zealot. He was probably a Jew freedom fighter who wanted to do anything to overthrow Rome to bring back Israel. But we also know that he thought he would do whatever he could take and God would approve it. But we also knew he was a murderer. He probably was one of those men who carried a short dagger under his cloak and would just, you know, take someone down quickly and kill them so as soon as he walked away and that person fell, he could run away and never be seen. There was no more dangerous people like him. But I want to remind ourselves, and I've mentioned this before and it's on the screen, as we look at Barabbas, we should be also looking at ourselves. Friends, he was rebellious against the law. Outside of Jesus Christ, we are rebellious against the law, are we not? He was condemned to die. Do you know that the wages of sin is death? We deserve that spiritual death and physical death. And spiritually speaking, we have all resisted. We've all rebelled against God. And Barabbas just means son of a father. He's just a generic name. We really don't know much. But the Spirit has come into our lives to say, Abba, Father, there's a difference. Barabbas is not saved. We are saved. But as we look at him, we should not be so easily to dismiss ourselves because if we were there outside of Christ, we would have followed the crowd. Son, don't ever jump off a bridge when your friends jump off the bridge. You would never do that, would you? 
How many of y'all have jumped off more bridges into water and depths that you probably should never have done? Has anyone ever done that before? Please don't raise your hand. One person, one brave soul, and that's all right. Yes, but we don't follow the crowd. We follow Christ. Second thing I want you to see here is I want you to see how evasive Pilate is. The word is spreading. People are waking up. The life is going on. And you notice there in verse 8 as he goes on, and the crowd came up and began to ask Pilate to do what he usually does for them. It's a custom. They're used to doing this. And he answered them in verse 9, Do you want me to release for you the king of the Jews? Now, for Pilate, he sees this as a no-brainer. Pilate's a pretty shrewd guy, and he expects a positive answer. He's ready to, to, to slough off responsibility from Jesus and to shake it all off. And this is a reminder to us, and, and, and Tori will throw this up, but our flesh is always looking for the easy way out and the path of least resistance. Amen? That donut is sitting at your house or at the workroom, and you know, you know you can take the other way around the office or the other way around the shop to get around that donut. But yep, you walk through the break room and you say, well, somebody's got to eat it. <laughs> You've never done that, I'm sure. But our flesh caves so quickly, does it not, to the things that are there. And that's a silly example. But for Pilate, it's all about control. For Pilate, it's all about stability. For Pilate, in fact, it's all about thinking of his own neck. Because if things get out of hand, he's going to be out of hand. He's going to be out of a job. And rather than doing what is right or wrong, Pilate is standing here. He's doing what most churches have done. Can I take this a step further? Most churches have gotten to the point, whatever works, we're going to do it. Whatever gets someone in the door to see Jesus Christ, let's go for it. Whatever it takes to get people in their flesh to be excited, let's, let's get them all fleshed up. Friends, what you win people to is what you keep them to. What they come in the door with is what they expect to stay in the door with. Don't think Pilate is just doing something that churches never do, because we do this all the time. If we just do this program with these lights, with this budget, with this personality, or we hire this pastor who's really good with people and really speaks in a passionate way, then the church is going to grow in ways we've never grown before. But oh, by the way, we don't want to talk about the fights that are happening, the rivalries, the unforgiveness, the bitterness, the, the things that are happening internally, spiritually. We just want to reach people for Jesus, Pastor. Friends, our flesh is always looking for the easy way out. But Jesus has reminded us, hasn't he, that the, the way is narrow and we are to take up our cross daily and it is always an uphill grind, but God's always got our back. And that's the good news. And you see here the envious leaders in this crowd five days before when they came into the city, they were wanting him to be king. And now one group of people are mad. The, the chief priests are mad because Jesus has exposed them. He has been a threat to them. And you see that in verse uh, I believe in here in verse 8 and verse 9. And he says, you want for me to release the king of the Jews? For verse 10, he perceived that it was out of envy that they delivered him up. But the chief priest stirred up the crowd. You know, I, forget which political side you're on. Both sides have been guilty in the last few years, admittedly, and they've admitted this, that they hire people full-time to incite crowds at political rallies. We still do this today. You know, or um, some fake TV preachers will pay someone with an earpiece in their ear to stand up and say, I need a miracle, I need a miracle, I need a miracle, and then they fall down like they've just had a miracle, and really they've just fallen down because they got paid to do so. They get the Oscar for the best acting job. Friends, 
don't be afraid to know that the same sinful spiritual blindness that was happening then is happening now. They got in the crowd and they're, they're exciting everybody up. Crucify him. Crucify him. You almost hear, I, I've mentioned this before, the Rudy, the movie, the Rudy, if you've seen that movie. They kind of get a slow clap going, crucify him. They weren't slow clapping, but you see the point. They were working the crowd. Because they knew if the crowd saw Jesus that they were going to let him go because they loved Jesus. It was never a popularity thing with Jesus. It was always an envious thing with the, the leaders. And so they get everyone all worked up. And envy is going to eat you alive. Can I just speak to that word for a second? It's going to eat you alive. If you envy your neighbor, if you envy your boss, if you envy another church, if you envy another Christian, if you envy whatever you envy, it's going to eat you alive. And then it gotten to the point that the chief priests were ready to throw Jesus under the bus because of it. Being discontent with where I am and what I have is jealousy, but Pilate knows they have no just ground to go forward with. And they stir up the crowd to release Barabbas instead. Can you, let's put this in modern day vernacular. Say you have a man who, let's, let's just throw out two names. You have, many of you all know who this name is, Billy Graham who passed away a year and a half ago. Billy Graham, the old, used to be called America's pastor, America's preacher. Imagine that Billy Graham stood trial before, and we were in a day and an age where this custom still existed. And then they brought out Charles Manson. Charles Manson. Or uh, an, an extreme terrorist who bombed people everywhere. And there were people who were upset that Billy Graham was preaching the truth. And they stirred up the crowds, and the president said, which one do you want? Well, it's a pretty obvious choice. Who wants Charles Manson or some Islamic extremist or Christian extremist that did crazy things? It's a, it's a slam dunk, right? And then they release that person who caused thousands of people their lives back on the streets, and yet no one does anything about it. Can you imagine the uproar that would happen in today's world? It'd be nuts. Friends, this is what spiritual blindness does to you. It takes you away from seeing things as they are. And then he goes on in verse 12, and you see this explosive crowd, and the crowd is fired up now. They're, they're ready for something to happen. And Pilate said to them, then what shall I do with the man called the king of the Jews. And they cried. Notice the they. The they is not just the crowd or the chief priests. It is the crowd as well. They cried, crucify him. And, and we get the sense that this is done repeatedly. Mark's been using verbs that, t that, that, that repeat, crucify him, crucify him, crucify him. And a lot of people at rallies don't even know what's going on. You ever see that? Down at Quick Trip in 435, about three weeks ago, there was uh, guys that got in some fight, and you may have seen that on the news, and they interviewed one guy, and they said, what are you doing here? He said, I really don't know. I just saw a crowd, and it looked like fun. That was his exact quote. Crucify him. And Pilate said to them, why? Pilate has a backbone, at least in this moment. What evil has he done? But they shouted all the more, crucify him, crucify him, crucify him. Pilate didn't know the depths of total depravity until he met a crowd that didn't like what he had to do. Friends, he's going to give in in a moment, but he holds his ground, and there's no answer. There's only pushback, and I just want to ask you today, what are you trusting in? And, and Tori will throw this up, but what is your faith in today? In whom or what are you trusting? Pilate was trusting that people would have good sense to make easy, common-sense decisions. How do you pick this guy, Jesus, over this crazy terrorist, Barabbas? I mean, duh. I mean, this is a no-brainer. I mean, Pilate's got the slam dunk in the bag. Let's go eat a second breakfast like the hobbits kind of thing. But what happens is, what is your faith in? Is your faith in the political system to get things right? 
Is your faith in your husband or your wife or your children that if you just pour into them that everything's going to smooth out in your life? Is your faith in more than a doctor? That that doctor, man, we're just going to, that doctor's got it all or, or, or whatever it is. Is it a political view or social view? What is your faith really in? Because the portrait of the crowd asking for Barabbas is held up to you by Mark for you to consider whether or not you believe in the love of God can be the most powerful force in the world. Friends, if we want to see this culture change, we want to see our neighborhoods change, it starts with trusting in the belief and the fact that even when people are spiritually blind, our God is greater and our God is bigger. Our brother mentioned as he prayed this morning that as we went through Ephesians, that he, Paul was praying that Jesus would be bigger to the crowd of Ephesians. Ephesians has a lot of high and lofty doctrine, predestination, election, and all those great words we know today. But Paul was really writing the letter of Ephesians to encourage them to remember that no matter what you're facing, our God is bigger, our God is greater, and our God is truly stronger. What are you trusting in? You know, Christianity eventually became the whole religion of Rome. The crowd that once said crucify them eventually had kids that had kids that had kids that had kids, and the love of the Christian faith changed Rome inside out, and eventually Rome became the center of Christianity. But it took a lot of spiritual blindness to get there. Last point, we'll close with this. Portrait number three, not only is there spiritual love, Jesus loved us more than his own life, not only is there spiritual blindness that people didn't see through their sin, but finally, there is spiritual weakness that comes. Notice verse 15. It's very clear from the text. Pilate says this. They yell, crucify him. So Pilate, wishing to satisfy the crowd, released for them Barabbas, and having scourged Jesus, he delivered him to be crucified. The moment that you decide that you're more about pleasing people, no matter what leadership or what servant role or what, what role you're in, you're already headed into wrong waters. I thought back on this long and hard, and I thought back to 1 Samuel chapter 8, when Israel came to Samuel the prophet and said, we want a king. Just like these other nations got a king, <laughs> Samuel, we want a king. You remember that story, some of y'all? He went out there, and Samuel took it before the Lord as any, any, any good person would. He said, Lord, they're nuts. You're cra they're crazy. This is, this is crazy. This is not what you would have. And God said, basically in simple terms, let them have a king. They're in sin. Let them have a king and let them have what they want. And friends, sometimes when we give in to the crowd, let me be clear, Samuel did not give in and God did not give in. That was part of the plan. But when we give in to the crowd and we want to please people, we start to get in trouble. Christian, you start to get in trouble when you're more afraid to share the truth about Jesus than you are about, uh, well, I should say this way, you're more fearful about uh, not pleasing someone and hurting their feelings than you are more about sharing the, the love of Jesus Christ boldly. We've crossed the line. Our parents, and every parent's had their weak moments, and trust me, we've been there. When that kid, yesterday, uh, our, our family uh, went to Walmart yesterday, and our youngest found a uh, Cars, uh, if you know the movie Cars, and, and any parent or grandparent last 10, 15 years, you know that movie more times than you need to know that movie. Uh, Seth picked up one of those big Mack truck things that holds all the little cars, you know. We were buying presents for birthday presents, and he grabbed it, and it's mine. <laughs> Are you buying it? No, mommy buy it. So we let him carry it down the aisle a little bit and talked with him some more, but we had to have that hard talking to. 
this is not going home with us. And then I think they called 911. They thought there was an earthquake happening at Walmart and Liberty about 9 o'clock yesterday because he didn't want to let it go. The mo that is not us. That's a proud moment. We stood our ground. There are other proud moments we don't, parents, me more than Natalie, but you understand. In a moment where he had a backbone, he was asking the questions. Because of the crowd, he gave it up. Friend, may you pray that never happens in our church. In leadership, can you pray for us as leaders? That as we look, work to, to live out and teach the Bible, that we work and live it with a backbone, with love and grace and humility. That when things come before us as pastors, that as we work out things and situations in our church, that we are not high and mighty, we've just been called, we are one person leading another person to bread, but we stand our ground on the Word of God. Would you pray that for us? Would you pray that for each Christian here? As we go into our workplaces and our neighborhoods and we stand for Jesus and people ask us questions about Jesus, that we don't give in as Pilate did in a moment of, of weakness, that we stand our ground for Jesus Christ? Would you pray that for our church, that as the cultural grip of, of falsehood yanks its arms around our church's neck, that we don't give in to satisfy the crowd? We don't water down the message. We don't water down the methods. We don't water down anything. We just simply say, Christ be exalted. Would you pray for that? Well, Darren Pilate wasn't a Christian, exactly, 100% of the problem, and he gave in. But friends, I think there's a note here for us. If our Savior can stand in the gap of the most wicked people of the most wicked time in, in a way, so too we can stand by God's grace in those moments. And we will. So this is where Pilate left it. There is a moment of spiritual weakness, a moment where he came. And friends, and, and Tori will end with this, but could there be a louder warning about the deceptive and destructive power of the craving of the approval of men? Can I just be full disclosure here? There are times where I'm afraid as your pastor to preach through truths of the Bible because I'm afraid someone's going to come to my office upset. Hashtag truth. But you're the pastor. You're supposed to preach God's Word. Oh, yeah, you get up here every Sunday and do this. This, this sermon's not about me. Please don't take that. But I want you to say that even for those of us called into ministry, the things that we lead with sometimes are going to cause things to happen that we know will happen if we go down that way because the Bible goes that way. There are moments we'd rather just say, let's preach on the love of Christ. Let's avoid the topic. Let's not go there. You pray for us because you know what? It's hard. And guys, it's hard for you too because there are times when we're wrong as pastors that we do things that aren't always right, that, that you have to work up the gall and the strength to come to us and say, brother, I love you, but that's out of line. Pray that we don't fall to spiritual weakness. Pray that we don't fall to the approval of men. I hope you see that. There are churches around Easter time that will spend close to a million dollars getting a helicopter with Easter eggs, and they will go up with about 100,000 Easter eggs, and they will drop them out of the helicopter. That's pretty cool, isn't it? It's pretty neato. It's pretty great. But there's not one mention about Jesus. There's not one mention about the cross. There's not one mention about the resurrection because they don't want to offend people. Guys, if you're here today, you're already offending somebody. Hey, Chiefs fans, you're offending the Raiders fans. Stop it. You're already doing it. How much more? As we go through this episode, do we see our Savior not worried about the opinions of men, but worried about pleasing His Father? May it be so with us. He gave His best for our worst in the great exchange. Let's pray as we close today. Father, as we come...
and we come before you. We know that there is nothing good in us outside of Jesus Christ. There's nothing good that dwells in us. We were dead in our trespasses and dead in our sins. Yet, Father, by your good grace, but God, being rich in mercy, you have saved us, Lord.